We are continuing in our series this morning on Amazing Grace, and we kind of started it in our week of prayer and fasting because it was the theme of every day of the week. We unpacked all these different uh, ways in which grace can be described. Now, grace is actually a pretty, I don't want to say complicated word. It's a rich word. It's a deep word, and it's almost in some ways hard to know the exact definition of it which is why we need to keep attaching words to it. Like if you went through the prayer and fasting booklet, it was abundant grace and justifying grace and enriching grace and saving grace. There's just so many different kinds of grace. Um, So we're going to walk through them one by one over the next six weeks in an Amazing Grace sermon series so we really get to the bottom of what this word actually means. Um, I was writing uh, in the home feed this week. I don't know if you guys know this. Maybe you haven't noticed in a while, but every week somebody writes a little blurb of something that's going on in our community. We just call them reflections. Um, and they're often really awesome. I know it's kind of funny that I'm plugging, <laughs> I'm plugging the home feed on the week that I wrote <laughs> the home feed. But I did, and so hey, why not? It's on my mind. Uh, it's at the top of the pe- piece of paper that you can grab on your way in, and it's at the top of every email that we send out on Wednesdays or Thursdays, our weekly church email. And they're often really insightful, especially this week. And so what I was writing, what I was writing in, uh, in this thing was this concept of grace is it's almost like it's hard to define, but what was touched on last week was this idea that there's an aspect to grace, this saving, abundant grace that is outside of you. Like it's, it's someone else giving you grace in their own initiative, on their own volition. God is doing that on his own. He took the first steps. He makes the first move. And there's an aspect of that that's a little uncomfortable, but just to kind of, you know, catch you up if you missed last week, um, that has to be true because there's an element of your salvation that you just can't fix. Like, God is reconciling himself to you by his own power, and he's the only one that can do that. There's an irreconcilable gap called sin that he has to make up for. We're not able to do that by our own works, our own efforts, our own good deeds, all those things. He has to initiate this reconciliation. It's beyond you. It's outside of you. The, uh, and w- what was also touched on is that initiation also empowers us to then choose to love him back, and those things are simultaneously true at the same time, but it's initiated by him. And the example that I used in the, in the home feed, if you read it in the blurb, it's, it's kind of this idea of if you go to a mechanic with your car, and then they say, I know what the problem is, and then the, 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 term, the, the, the part of the car they refer to that the problem is with is a part you've never heard of. And you're like, I think I'm going to need to hire you. <laughs> like I just, you're officially, you officially have my business because I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I don't know what a carburetor even does. And so there's, a, there's an element to our salvation that's just beyond us. We couldn't fix it if we tried. And we don't even know the name of the part. And I'm really grateful for that. However, it can be a little awkward to require saving. And so I don't know how you feel with the idea of needing to be saved and there being an irreconcilable gap between you and the one who made you and you were designed to know. I don't know how that makes you feel. One of the ways that I was thinking about it this week that was a little more helpful than someone's trying to save me, you know, it's like someone's pursuing me to save me, um, can be a little bit more of awkward language, but maybe a more helpful word is someone's pursuing you, like really pursuing you relationally because they love you and they want to know you. Now, that requires salvation because God, 
God wants to be with you forever. <laughs> he wants to build a kingdom that is perfect, which means he has to save you from all that separates you from him. However, the motivation for said grace is deeply relational and loving in nature, if that makes sense. And so uh, I, I don't know how you feel about the idea of being pursued. Just full on, someone is after you because they love you. And they've made it well. We'll get there in a second. But um, I, I was reminded of this story of being pursued. I, a grade, picture grade four, Jonathan, nine-year-old Jonathan. I moved from uh, private school to public school. And I didn't really know how uh, the world worked, I guess. <laughs> and I got thrown into this crazy world of this public school at nine years old. And I missed all the memos that you get in grade one, two, and three. Just because, I don't know, the Christian school was a little more sheltered and it was just a different environment. And so public school was a lot different. And I missed a bunch of the things that you just shouldn't do or say. And so I got thrown into this weird world. And uh, especially, I had no idea how guys and girls were supposed to interact. I suppose that's a thing you learn in grade four, five, six. You begin to start to taste in grade four, five, six anyways. But it kind of all compounded in this whole new world of the way that guys and girls interacted. And I'm like, what is happening? So I remember, um, I remember there was this girl who lived close to my house, and we used to walk the same way to school, back and forth, and it was really creepy, because she would walk 40 feet behind me, to and from school, like most days, exactly 40 feet, you know how I know? Because I knew she was following me, and keeping the distance that distance, because if I slowed my walk down, she'd stay the same distance behind me, and if I sped up way faster than a normal walk, she'd still be like roughly 40 feet behind me, it was the weirdest thing. I suppose she was trying to tell me that she liked me in some nine-year-old way. But it's like, and then if I stopped, I mean, this is nine-year-olds. It's just all kinds of awkward. If I stopped and turned around and looked at her, she'd stop and stare at me. <laughs> but too far away to say anything. It was genius. And then you, I'll, then you turn and keep walking again. And then I, it, it's so weird. <clears throat> it was kind of flattering, I guess. But I just like, <laughs> I remember not knowing what to do with that. And it felt so awkward. <clears throat> I just, there's, a, there's an element of being, pursued is a weird word to use for nine-year-olds, but there's, a, there's an element of this, it's awkward. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. And I think we so often treat God as, a, as, a, as not a person who's after us personally, you know, with affection in mind and, and uh, a desire in mind. All of these words that we are so they're so obvious to us in romantic relationships. And then they're just so foreign with God. So I think he is pursuing you. Now, the, the topic for today is justifying grace. And uh, this, is, um, uh, this is the idea that in order for us to be close, and in order for us to actually be in relationship with God, it requires the justification of sin. We'll get there in a second. Um, but I want to read a little bit of... Uh, I want to read a little bit of scripture for us to set us up. We're going to be uh, looking at Titus 3 this morning. And Titus is, a, is an interesting book because Paul's writing to the, to, the, to the church there, and it's in Crete, and uh, the Cretans are kind of a hedonistic people, like they're, they're partiers, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very lavish culture. And the church has adopted a lot of the practices of the Cretans, and it's, it's, be, it's becoming difficult at this point in church history for that church to tell the difference between the church and just Cretan culture. And so Paul is writing to, uh, to, a, to a church that's struggling with lots, all kinds of debauchery and being very similar to culture. And, uh, and he's writing, and he does a very interesting thing in helping this church 
want justification for sin and want reconciliation and want to be the church again in a holy, set-apart kind of way. And he does it in this way. He starts off by saying, uh, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So he just goes on, he just, he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to help you guys. I'm going to bring up and remind you of all the terrible things you've ever done. <laughs> it's a funny way to begin a letter or I guess it's in the middle of the letter, but it's, it's part of his, it's part of his, uh, he's hoping that the church changes and, and grabs a hold of its first love again. And so it seems all kind of bizarre to just go, hey, let's pause. Let's remember how evil we all are. Let's remember how depraved we are, or, or were, are, it's all kind of messy. But it is important. He says, at one time, at one time, you, you were this way. And that's really, really important. Uh, is he, so I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever done this when you feel like you're not close to God or, you, or there's something going on in your life? Do you ever sit and go, okay, I'm going to remind myself of all that I was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell on pain from the past or <laughs> memories that I wish I didn't have. Bizarre. This is what you were. <clears throat> Here's why think that Paul's doing this, and why I think the Holy Spirit is not afraid to remind us who we were. And, and it's not like salvation or justification is this, you know, you remember Men in Black from back in the day with the thing that erases the memory, you know, and then you never remember the last half an hour or whatever. I don't think that's how grace works. Isn't it nuts that Jesus had scars? You can think about that fact forever. That's a deep rabbit hole of Wow. Like, Jesus had scars. Uh, I think that's really powerful because this, the concept of redemption, redeeming something, is way more powerful than just forgetting or erasing. Right? It's not a memory wipe. It's not like you're just going, okay, I want to be saved, and I want to be justified, so I wish you just take away all the bad things, take away all the memories and all the scars, uh, and... and, and, and and that's not how grace works. It's like, no, 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 I'm so powerful. I'm so powerful and so capable of actually changing things that I can take what's bad and was meant for evil and turn it into good and actually build a story, actually bring myself glory through that event that I, being God, didn't wish happened. But that's how powerful I am. I've conquered it. It's way more important than don't worry, I can wipe it all away, even though that's not a terrible word to use. I know God does erase our sin, okay? And we are justified in an erasing white as snow sort of sense. But just as true is the fact that you and I remember what we were. And that's important because I think God's trying to show us how powerful he is to actually redeem and justify, not just make everything okay in a magic pixie dust kind of way. So, uh, just a quick definition here of justification. Um, this idea of redemption instead of forgetting. Redemption actually requires justification. Like, you know what you did, and I'm going to pay for it. So the definition of justification we'll work with this morning is just this. It's a simple one. It's the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. Say that again. The action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. You, are, you were made holy 
and righteous in the sight of God. And it's the action of doing so. So we're justified by what Jesus did. Right? That action makes us justified. Very important. So here's what I think uh, happens a lot of the time with sermons that have complicated words like this, like justification. Is, uh, is, and it's important to do this. It's not, a, it's not a bad way of speaking. But a lot of the time when I've heard sermons on justification, you spend a ton of time trying to define exactly of the mechanics of how that works. Right? And it's important to understand it at a certain level. Like, how does it work that Jesus paid for my sins and made me holy? And I mean, we'll, we'll address those things today too. But as I was like researching, like, okay, what does justification actually mean? It's one of those longer words that you have to look up again when you have to talk about it because you're just like, okay, I need to make sure I know what this means. And there's just lots of articles and commentaries on how it works, right? How the mechanics of being justified works. It's all very interesting and very, very important. But the, the question that kind of kept bubbling up in my mind as I was reading about this, and there's just long books this thick on justification. And I just couldn't help but ask, okay, so I've got, you know, after you say hi to you all, I've got, you know, 27 minutes by the time you, know, you get started to explain it all. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. So I just, I just thought, what if we dwell on the so what today? Like, so what we're justified by grace? Uh, another way, why? Why would God do that? Why would he want to? Building on this idea that the saving grace pursues you and he's a person that loves you, I'm in, we're going to be interested this morning in the why would God want to justify you? Have you ever stopped to think about that? I think a lot of the time we as Christians get just super fascinated by the mechanics of things because they are beautiful and fascinating. But I don't stop and go, why, would you, why did you do that again? Remind me why you did that. It's easy to miss. I miss it all the time. So we're going to use our time to do that this morning, even though we could have it just as good as a sermon on the mechanics. But it feels as though I felt the prompting in the Holy Spirit to talk about the why of justification. So, you know, how are we justified? Um, let's spend a little moment on the how, and then we'll move to the why. Let's keep reading here uh, in Titus, starting at verse 4 again. But, you know, so this, this is the, this is all the sin and the reminding of, like, this is who you were, because I want to redeem you. And then he goes, but, which is the best part of any of Paul's letters. There's always a but, you know, halfway through, and theologians always go, like, Paul, you always look for the but, because it's the most important part. He uses it a lot. But, when the kindness and love of God Kindness and love, okay? So just, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Let's just stop there for a second. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Think of the word, think of the word appeared. It's a, our justification was an event executed by a person. It's real. It's tangible. It is not some idea or something to be understood so much as something to be witnessed and believed and known. Maybe that's too hard to decipher between, but it makes all the difference in the world to me. Uh, God, our Savior, appeared in the flesh like a person came to save us. Uh, and this is important. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what the opposite of that would be. You're like, yeah, of course, Jesus was a person. I know that. Okay, so... But let's spend, let's spend a minute just thinking about why that's so important. Because here's, here's what that isn't. Salvation and justification and, and redemption and all that stuff isn't a you-can-do-it speech by Jesus. It isn't a here's the plan to follow 
good luck moment. It isn't, um, here's a body of knowledge you need to understand kind of moment. All those things are true. There's things to do. There's things to know. There's paths to follow. There's things to understand. There's motivational speeches to be latched onto. I mean, why not? But that isn't the source of our justification. It's a person. And when you think about being pursued out of love, it has to be. Why is it important that it isn't just knowledge? Well, because if it's just knowledge, we lose the personal aspect of grace being like an intention by a loving God who wants to know you. And if we don't have that, it's impossible to understand the why of it all. And I would argue that it's really difficult for it to grip our hearts if it's just an idea. Like, I want salvation to grip my heart. Have you guys been frustrated recently? I've been frustrated recently by... Um, I'll, like, I'll explain, I have a chance to, exp I've had many opportunities actually in the last year or so to explain the gospel to people that haven't heard it before. And uh, just, the, just the mechanics of it, the, the love story, right? The love story of that, just what happened. And, uh, and it doesn't uh, grip them. <laughs> it, it doesn't turn their heart upside down like it does mine. And I'd be very frustrated by it because it's like I, you're, ch you're changed by, uh, by love, not just by understanding. You're changed by knowing, not just, yeah, having something become clear to you. So this is what, this is what I think, why I think that um, our salvation is a personal relationship is because I think personal relationships and feeling that and knowing that intimacy is what changes us. You ever think about, like, when was the last time you really changed, not just improved? Does, does, that, does that difference make sense to you? Like, we improve ourselves all the time, and we, come, we become marginally better at things because we learned new facts and applied new techniques and gained competencies for things. But I mean actual change. Like, I'm a new creation. I'm a different person. My motivation for the why I do things is different now. Like, you have a new why, not just a new technique. I think that's what God wants to give us. Like, he's trying to change our hearts from stone to flesh, from self to love. Like, that is change. That's not improvement. And so the question begs to be asked is, uh, we can know all the facts of how the mechanics of justification work, but it doesn't actually grip our hearts in a way that's like, someone did that for you. Someone loved you so much to make a way for that. And if we remove, I mean, the mechanics are fun, but if we remove the personal element of the who of justification, it's very difficult to really change, at least for me. And here's why. And I think this theme is going to flow throughout Sunday services and basically everywhere for the next little while because it's something that's bubbling up in a lot of our hearts as we, as we have discussions amongst leadership and just stirrings of the Holy Spirit is this idea that I think our church is called in this next season to foster a deep affection for God and for each other. And the word affection is very, very important because you know when you have an affection, it's a very special feeling and it drives you to do all sorts of crazy, insane things that really are only done out of affection. Like you know the difference between doing the dishes because you love that person who would have had to do it otherwise or you have to. Everyone knows the, the why is different in certain moments. We all know and it's all affection driven. It's all who-driven. 
So uh, people ask me, uh, someone asked me, I don't know, maybe a month ago, um, why they asked me, they were trying to give me a compliment, is why, they asked me, Jonathan, why did you not have like a season in your life where you were rebellious? You know, the classic, I don't know, went and experimented with whatever to see the world and those sorts of things. I never really had a season like that in my life. It just didn't, ha- it didn't happen. And um, so the first thought that went through my head was, okay, A, I was still really selfish. I just figured out how to use religion to benefit me, right? Like, it, you could still be selfish and never have a rebellious season. It's just called using rules and self-righteousness and you-can-do-it theology to make yourself feel better and stay in control of your life using religion. Like, it's still selfish. So that's the first thought that went through my head. Is I, If you're trying to say, Jonathan, you were never selfish, that is not true. <laughs> but there is another element to it, and I really thought about it for a second. I was like, okay, why didn't I do X, Y, and Z? And I remember having a very simple answer go through my head. I was like, oh, I couldn't imagine hurting my parents. It was very simple. And maybe that feels really small and strange, and potentially even like bizarre, like, ooh, it's, your parents must be so controlling. It's like, isn't that, isn't that the words that go through your head? How controlling must your parents have been that you couldn't disappoint them? They must have shamed you into not doing bad things. Like that's the, I don't know, that's what's going through my head. And I'm like, no, I just couldn't imagine hurting their feelings. It's really that simple. And then something just starts to click in my head, being like, I was motivated by an affection for other people who I respected. And what would it look like for us to do things or not do things because of who we love and who we know and couldn't imagine being separated from for half a second? I think we're supposed to make decisions way more relationally than we really do, than I do. And because uh, the alternative is just cold and it's cost-benefit And it's very rigid and just religion and it becomes rules like this. Instead, God's trying to go, would you not do that because you love me? Instead, because then you're just set. (laughs) Like you're set for life because you've learned how to be in the body. I'll make it even more crazy and potentially weirdly abusive. Like what does it look like to make decisions based on who your church is and the people around you? What would it look like to to, to make decisions based on, or, or to live your life in such a way where you took into account what other people thought. Like, there's crazy Bible verses about don't cause your brother to stumble. God's trying to give us a relational, affection-driven motivation for the way that we live our life because it, that's what changes us, not just knowledge. So, now, just like parents, he initiates this affection. Just like a parent would go, like, this is what I feel like successful parenting probably is, even though I kind of have no idea. But um, what if at the end of your child's life, under your care, they loved you? <laughs> That's the goal. Not that they were further ahead or new thing. all good stuff, by the way. Further ahead, new things, well-supported, good morals, blah, blah, blah. What if they were attached to you? Like, what if they loved you? (laughs) 
What if the goal of to raise relationally healthy children that know what it's like to make a decision not on their own because you're not an island. No one is. We're all relational beings. And I think we accidentally doom kids or ourselves into thinking that it's about anything but connection and knowing someone. And what, a, what an amazing lesson to teach a child to go, uh, in the same way that you have an affection for me, God, God is way more capable of loving you than I am. And you've built a construct in a child for trust. And you've built a construct in a young person to attach and be driven by love and affection, which I think is, ends up being the church when you put it all together. So just like parents, he initiates the affection. He starts it. The parent starts it, of course. The baby's not doing all that much. So, just it says here, and you know, five, uh, verse five will continue. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. You have a lot of mercy on a baby, right? You have a lot of mercy on a baby. There's not a lot of give and take. And it really starts with mercy. But then as a child grows up, it starts to look like justice, not just mercy. You wicked three-year-old. You, you, like it, you know, it stops just being mercy. It's like, no, it's loving that I am just in this moment right now. But what makes either mercy or justice good, because they're both tools, right? Who knows when it's supposed to be a mercy moment, and we just get ice cream because it's all good because I love you anyway, and who knows when it's supposed to be, I'm sorry, but you got to go to your room because that's just not okay. And a parent is wielding those tools as best as they know how because at the end of a child rearing, it looks like a million of those decisions. And you don't know, you know each one could be either but the intention of the parent is what makes those things good or wrong. And sometimes parents are just way too merciful. And I would argue that they're not love-driven or affection-driven because they're afraid of coming down on the child. And if you're just justice-driven, it's just going to be rules and obligations and it's equally unloving. But if the heart of the parent is to attach and know and pursue in the same way that God is pursuing us in a direction for a purpose, in that same loving intention, that I want to raise you up to be a loving person. Now you need both tools, and I think we call that loving intention and motivation grace. And parents have tons of grace on their kids, obviously, and it's of their own volition. And eventually, eventually, they start to love you back. And then you know you've raised a child that has a construct for what life is all about, I would argue. So he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, like a child, <clears throat> but because of his mercy. Um, I'm just going to read these last few verses here, and then we'll end. Uh, he saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Well, there's so much in there, and I have two minutes and 40 seconds left. But uh, what I want to draw your, um, I want to draw your attention to the word generously. Amen. Whom he poured out on us generously. And what that made me think of is, is renewal by the Holy Spirit, right? Renewal by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word that came to mind was holiness, 
Holiness is another one of those beautiful words that's just so hard to describe, but it's being set apart and pure and blameless and justified and uh, uh, known. Like, that's the crazy part about being redeemed. I should have said this earlier, but if you're redeemed, you're known in your sin. Like, he knows your depravity and saves you. Way more beautiful. And he takes you and makes you holy. And it's not like, like he, he washes you white, implying that you weren't at one time. And, and you're known in that place. Like, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It, it's just, redemption is just so much more beautiful, and he makes us holy. And here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Is, you know, generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, is in order to make us holy, he had to be holy and die. The holy one had to die. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks as I was just preparing this, is the beauty of all that Jesus was and all who God is had to die for the sake of our holiness. And if that's not an affection-driven love story, like, I don't know what is, right? Like, I don't know what is. And uh, I just, you, you think about creation and God speaking the world into existence. And it's just, I mean, I don't mean to belittle creation, but in some ways it's just words. Like, when you read Genesis, doesn't it seem kind of easy? <laughs> it's just all right, here's a place for us to dwell. Bang. I guess he rested on the seventh day, but it didn't seem all that hard. <laughs> Just words. Contrast creation with redemption of humanity. Creation, he just has to speak. And redemption, he has to die. It's a very, very different. And I think a lot of the time we just want creation, Christianity. Created me a new thing. Give me a new something, create more things in me and make me marginally better. And he's like, Ugh. the plan is actually to change you from the inside out, which means that I have to pay for all that. And why is because I love you and I'm driven by an affection for you. And so I think a lot of time we think about grace, it's just like, okay, how does that work exactly? Explain to you how that works. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's do a Bible study on it tonight, t t this morning. Think about why he would do that. Why would he do that for you? I don't think he, because he loves you, like you. And what's the definition of justification here? The action of declaring or make us, making righteous in the sight of God. He sees you. He sees you and he wants to know you. And I'm so guilty of depersonalizing God over and over and over again and I stay stuck and I stay unchanged because the gripping nature of being pursued by a person who loves me I, you block it out because it's awkward and it feels like the girl 40 feet behind me and I don't know what to do with it. But we know the character of that person who's pursuing us. Yeah. We know who that is. And if you know who that is, it's the best news in the entire world. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. just wanna pray for us. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful that your character is made plainly known to us through your word. And your holiness is so evident and your trustworthiness is so evident and proven and substantiated. But God, I, I do also ask that as true as those things are, I pray that they would grip our hearts in a way that only kind of emotion can. It's a strange thing to pray for sometimes, but God, I do pray for the emotionality of love to rest on our hearts. The, the, your personhood and the love story element of grace would grip us 
And I pray that you'd help us feel whatever we need to feel. I pray that we wouldn't reduce you to, a, to, a, to, a, to mechanics. Thank you for how it all works. I'm so grateful that it makes so much sense and that it works so perfectly. But at the end of the day, Lord, I want to know you. And I want to know the why of that. And so would you grip our hearts this morning. And I pray that we would worship you out of a place of gratefulness for your generosity and the way that you poured out your spirit in our hearts and made a way for it. It's hard to know what to do with that reality except worship you. And so that's what we choose to do now. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen.